Hey, everybody. Come on over here. It's the Northern Miner Podcast. Hi, folks, and welcome to episode 110 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. And this week we've got a uh, double header. We're on the home stretch of the highlights from the Canadian Mining Symposium. And what we have here is part one. We, we uh, head off to Nicaragua, where we have Mark Child. He's the executive chairman and CEO of Condor Gold. He's interviewed by uh, Bill Whitelaw. He's the vice president of Glacier Media, our parent company, and he works in uh, Glacier's oil and gas division. With uh, He's the president and CEO of June Warren Nichols in uh, Calgary. So the things we touch on here with Nicaragua, Mark talks a little bit about just Nicaragua generally, and then um, he also talks about adding a Toronto Stock Exchange listing they were on the LSE since uh, 2006. They're still there. And they added the TSX listing in uh, early 2018. So he talks a little bit about the difference between the two markets and moving over to Toronto. And uh, that one's sponsored by the TSX. So a spoiler alert, he really likes the TSX. Part two, uh, we we go off to the Yukon. And um, this is, uh, again, I just took the highlights here. I took maybe half the Nicaraguan session. This is about half the uh, Yukon session. So we have Thomas Horton. He's the vice president of project development at Pembridge Resources. On there, also on the London Stock Exchange, P-E-R-E. Pembridge, you, you may, if you're not quite familiar with that, the president is uh, Peter Boytosh, a longtime mining veteran here, uh, well, based in Denver. But uh, they acquired the Minto mine in the Yukon uh, back in February from Capstone. So they, there is a bit of a London-Yukon um, connection there. So he, Thomas is hosting this panel. We have Stephen Mills. He's the Deputy Minister of Energy, Mines, and Resources in the Yukon government. And then we have Graham Downs. He's the President and CEO of Attack Resources. And Clinton Nauman, President and CEO of Alexco Resources. So uh, we go into just the lay of the land in the Yukon and also a bit about First Nations relations First, let's give a little shout-out to our podcast sponsors. Our longtime sponsor is the Yukon Mining Alliance. They're a group of 17 exploration, development, and mining companies, all active in the Yukon. And to learn more about the Yukon Mining Alliance, you can go to their website at yukonminingalliance.ca, and their Twitter feed is at, at investyukon, all one word on Twitter. Our second sponsor is the Grosso Group out of Vancouver, that's led by entrepreneur Joe Grasso, and they're uh, focused on South America, specifically on Argentina. And there are three public companies in the Grasso Group stable. There's Blue Sky Uranium, Golden Arrow Resources, and Argentina Lithium and Energy. For more information on those three companies and the Grasso Group as well, you can go to grassogroup.com. Let's take a quick look at the uh, commodity prices. It's really, uh, really awful uh, in the precious metals, particularly. A gold is at twelve sixty-five eighty. It's down thirty-five dollars in the last uh, thirty days, and it's the whole uh, precious metals uh, sectors down. Silver is at sixteen thirty-one. Platinum, eight sixty-seven. Palladium, nine thirty-seven. Uh, so yeah, things are all down there. Over in the base metals, you've got copper still holding above three dollars. It's at three oh six. Nickel six sixty five. Aluminum ninety seven cents. Zinc a dollar thirty two. I think that's an eight month low. Lead is at a dollar nine. Even the uranium was down slightly to twenty three ten per pound. U three oh eight. While gold prices were down, there was an interesting development in the junior gold market. You had uh, Orion Mine Financing is uh, bidding to take over Dalradian Resources in a friendly offer, and they're offering $1.47 cash for every Dalradian share. So that's, that values the whole company at $537 million. Orion Mine Financing is a private equity. 
and Dalradian. They have their Curranault uh, Gold Project in Northern Ireland. So one little wrinkle is that Sean Rusin and Osisco Gold Royalties will not be tendering their share. So that's been worked into the deal. So, yeah, even though gold prices are down, I'm sure people are uh, putting together little lists of potential takeover targets in the gold sector because that, that things seem to be uh, heating up now. So let's take a little break, and we will return with Mark Child of Condor Gold. As Anthony mentioned, this is a, is a nice summary. We've, uh, we've been sort of all across Canada, and Cameron took us down into Mexico, and now we're going to visit Nicaragua of Mark, who's uh, been in the mining business for a number of years. He's also uh, served his country admirably as a soldier in the Gurkhas. But he joined Condor in 2006 uh, as uh, chair of the board, and then in 2011 became the CEO. So that's backed by 20 years' experience in the uh, equity capital markets on the mining space. So he knows the space well. So let's, uh, let's, let's sort of kick things off, Mark, with the conversation about Condor's value at the moment and the unrealized opportunities that are associated with that value relative to the asset. Uh, well, thanks for that introduction, Bill. Yeah, we do feel we're undervalued at the moment. So uh, most of us looking at, uh, look at two matrix in the space. Uh, one would be a price-to-book ratio or price-to-NAV. Uh, we're trading at about 0.18 times uh, price-to-book ratio. And the other one of looking at uh, ounces in the ground, we have about 2.5 billion ounces of gold in total. Half of that is indicated and half inferred. We have about $18, $19 an ounce in the ground. Uh, how does that compare with the peer group in Canada, which is one reason we've gone for a listing there this, uh, this year? Um, it's about a third of the valuation of the, the peer group according to RBC Capital Markets. So on that, that basis, uh, you know, for all the investors in the room, the strategy of being dually listed, both on the LSE and, and the Toronto Stock Exchange, gives you access to two distinct groups of investors. Sometimes there's a bit of overlap in there, but it also allows you to touch the value proposition more broadly. Yes, it does. And I think that's important. Uh, uh, I've been in mining finance for 20 years and uh, running this for 12, uh, full-time for eight, as you point out. Some, in my experience, sometimes one market can be open and one market can be closed. So you do find that uh, London can be open and uh, will want to fund exploration any projects and, uh, and vice versa with Canada. So by having the dual listing on Canada in January this year, that, that increases that flexibility, particularly as we go into the final stage of the project. So we've uh, applied for permits and we're really taking that view with construction financing. Uh, in mine, we need $120 million to fund the mine. We're in the final phases of permitting. So yes, there's different pools of capital, and we do think exploration is uh, a lot better understood in a lot better understood in Canada. To that point, in terms of a uh, number of the prospects we've seen today have interesting investors in their mix, you know, and that's sort of a faith, a, a sign of faith and credibility of who else has parked some capital with Condor. In terms, right. maybe you can reflect on Ross and and some of that, uh, what that means in terms of, uh, yes. you know, the opportunities, credibility. Well, I, I've generally found, uh, having been on the investment side mm -hmm. myself, that uh, you can't rely on a broker to get money for you. Uh, as, a, as a CEO, you should go out and get it yourself. So the last uh, probably four financings that the company's done, the last four years, uh, I've tended to gone out and found the cornerstone investor for half of that placement. Uh, three and a half years ago, that was, that was the IFC World Bank. Uh, they put in $5 million and we raised 10. Similarly, when Ross Beattie came in uh, a couple of years ago, we found him or he found us and he put in half of that placement. So part of it comes down to deliberately, if you've got a great asset, which we have, you can you have a slight luxury of being able to hopefully choose who you try and get in as a, to anchor your funding. So the funding has come about that way rather than going to the broker. I found London to be a very leaky market. Uh, if you go on the roadshow, the share price tends to go down when you're going through the roadshow. That will come to no surprise to anybody here. And then you end up with a discount to that at the end of the day, uh, the end of your week or two roadshow. So to keep the price for the shareholders, it's better to try and get a, uh, someone to fix that price and, uh, 
anchor it with credible names, and that, that's what's helped. Yeah, and, and so on that same basis, you've got the great asset in the ground, you bring in the credible investors, but reflect for a minute on the actual Condor people assets in terms of both the management team and the board itself, which is a consistent story we hear yes. about the quality of the teams behind some of these assets. Yes, I mean, you've got to, in my position, in, in always uh, try and get the best team and surround yourself. I'm not a technical person, so that's important. And so when the IFC came in, we, one of the weaknesses they identified was on the environmental social side. So we have uh, Kate Harcourt join the board after their investment. They have a right to nominate someone to the board. That's been an absolutely uh, critical decision, uh, important as we go through permitting and uh, the social, uh, gaining a social license and uh, adhering to the IFC performance standards. Andrew Cheetle, who's here, as well known to you, uh, uh, as uh, the former uh, executive director of PDAC and a gold core in Canada as a um, chief mine geologist, has joined the board in January, so we have a Canadian-based director. And uh, Jim Mellon has, owns 5% of the company as a financier, and we, we have a, a geologist who was in Newmont for many years as our chief geologist. So at the board level, we, we've got environmentalists, uh, strong geologists, strong team, lots of experience. Uh, and to back us up, we've got 60 people on the ground, uh, and they're the best we can really get in Nicaragua. The exploration is led by Dr. Warren Pratt, who's a British uh, geologist, but uh, works very cl closely with uh, Lumina Group and Ross Beatty's group, and he's really been uh, instrumental in changing our view over the last two years and uh, going, for the, going for a five million district play. So we've got a solid so, team. So if you put that district play potential into the context of Nicaragua as a whole, in, and uh, you maybe can reflect, Mark, on some of the other companies that are operating there, which adds to the credibility of the jurisdiction overall, but also reflect on the permitting processes and how the, the regulatory environment, the permitting environment is, is pretty good in Nicaragua. Yes, it is. We've, we should just po probably reflect that Naranda operated Landia District back in the 1940s. Mm -hmm. So a Canadian company was there 70 years ago, 80 years ago, and the mine produced 40,000 ounces of gold a year. Over half a million came out at 13 grams. They never drilled it. They just high-graded it. So the Canadians were there 70 years ago. Well, part of our message is re-permitting re that. Uh, the big operator in the country is B2 Gold that has two commercial mines. Um, they have uh, taken, uh, have had about $1.6 billion worth of gold sales out of La Libertad and El Amor. And those mines are a three hour drive and a one hour drive respectively. And a company from, uh, from Colombia, Mineros SA, has also uh, got, got one of the mines, the Bonanza mine on the western side, eastern side of the country. Just a touch on the oh, permits. You asked oh, yes, me about oh, sorry, the, yes. the, the concessions. Yeah. You, if you get a concession in Nicaragua, you get it uh, granted for 25 years. It's both exploration and exploitation concessions. So that gives you a long, mm. long con uh, continuity. And we have those, you can own 100%, so there's no 10, 20% carried interest to anybody. Uh, you have a 3% royalty off the top to the government, and there's corporation tax like every other country of the, a company at 30%, and the upfront capex is fully tax deductible. And even as an exploration company, we're excluded the VAT on imports and on buying vehicles and goods for use at the mine site. So it's quite a mining-friendly regime in that sense. Maybe we can reflect on, on the strategy that Condor has taken in dealing with the community, its people, and <coughs> in investing into that community. In terms of the community, it's an old mining town. Uh, the poverty level is uh, 40% in that town. Uh, the message to them is to bring back the glory days of mining to the mining town, uh, which it hasn't had. This month and the next three months, we'll invest about 25,000 US dollars each month into, into the community. We have a social team of uh, 20 people. With the IFC as a shareholder, we have to sign up under a shareholder agreement to eight different types of uh, performance standards. For those familiar with it, uh, in terms of stakeholder engagement plans, communication plans, uh, water participatory monitoring programs, land acquisition plans. So, we're ticked off, if you like. Those, they take a lot of effort to put in place, uh, but they massively de-risk a project and give you your social license. Well, and, and, and so speak to some of the aspirations you've set in terms of poverty reduction goals and aspirations that tie to those. Yes, certainly. Well, the three commercial mines which we discussed have, a, have an average salary of uh, 700 US dollars a month. Uh, in the village of Landia, it's about 100 dollars a month. So there's a clear message that we're going to recruit locally 
way current. And, and if you join us over time, the average salary should be seven times higher than you're getting at the moment. That's, that's quite powerful. We're also going to commit to drinking water. That's a big theme for them. There is drinking water for half an hour in every 48 hours at the moment. So right now, we're giving these uh, five-gallon uh, water dispensers with a little tap. We have Landia Gold essay uh, embossed on them. Last week, we, that went to 360 households. Now, the, the social team deliver all, all 360 of those, and that's a humanitarian contribution, if you like, mm. and it reduces disease. But there, there's no drinking water, there's no sanitation, so the sewage is in the, in the hole in the backyard of, of these houses. And so we're, we're, the, the, that's all very well received. When the mine goes up, we'll put in a system for, the, for drinking water for the village and the community. Um, that's just one aspect. But in our surveys, when we talk about healthcare, education, jobs, the first thing is water, <laughs> clean drinking water. If you haven't got it, you, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's the big thing that we've been working on. You've got to be, da you've got to be careful that you're not doing the government's job. You know, mm. we're, we're not an ATM machine that can solve the panacea of all problems in a community with 40% uh, poverty. Uh, nothing else grows in that committee. We can offer jobs, uh, but even for jobs, we have to give a message. We'll offer training courses. You know, you've got to pass the training course, you've got to attend the training course, and we're not going to guarantee a job, but we hope there will be a job for you. So I think that you're, it's important on the social side not to sort of uh, over-promise and under-deliver. You, you can't say, right, you've all got jobs and somebody's a, a totally inappropriate bad worker who's a drunk and doesn't turn up. He doesn't get a job any more than he would in Canada or the UK. He's got to be a good worker. So uh, I think they'll always want more. One of the sad things in a way is I feel that the amount that we've done over the last six years, often we're told we don't do enough. Yes. And you say, if only you knew what we're really trying to do behind here. So we can communicate better. But for, some, for a minority of 10%, something will never be enough. You'll, their house will always want to be bought. Uh, they'll always think it's worth $100,000, $200,000 when it's worth five dollars or $10,000 because they've always been in poverty and you're, you're all the way out of poverty for them. So uh, it is a, it is a, uh, it's a delicate uh, uh, thing to manage. A delicate thing to balance. So just on that note too, and as we conclude, the, the, the idea of helping a community understand its own ability to be sustaining and right. self-employed. Maybe you can reflect on the artisanal mining uh, component of it in terms of there's an example of how a community stands on its own economic legs uh, by being connected to the process but not dependent on it. So in Nicaragua, the uh, artisanal mining is legal. 1% uh, of your concession, the artisanal miners are allowed to uh, utilize 1% of the concession. The challenge for us is we never know quite what 1% is uh, <laughs> or where they are. So we have artisanal miners surveys. Uh, the government at the moment is regulating artisanal mining. So we've been asked to give ID cards to all the artisanal miners. We gave 22 last month. We take their photo, we give them a grid reference, and we tell them what vein they can actually work on. They sign an agreement because we still have the subsurface mineral rights. So it's quite, it's becoming more and more regulated. They're then grateful for that, but when we say, right, you can work on that vein, on that grid reference, they also say, with a large commercial mine, we won't obstruct the mine. So we put in that contract, yeah, you can work there for nothing, it's our law. Uh, what we're also doing is we're inspecting. So we've now, we've hired a guy early this year, another person from B2 Gold. He goes, he's been down every single artisanal miner's shaft uh, and inspected them. So we're offering, we offered training last month for... 130 artisanal miners. Uh, those that passed the training course got rope. So we've given them a yellow rope, bright yellow rope of 45 meters. We give health and safety equipment and we give safety talks on how to construct their shafts. So we're having 70% of the people there, the workforce are artisanal miners. So, you know, hey, that's your biggest state stakeholder, mm -hmm. along with the Catholic Church and the government. <laughs> it's quite important we get that right. Yeah. I could keep talking about this, but, but the other thing, when the mine goes up, yeah. they have mercury rasters at the moment. There's about 35 over the district. We've done surveys. That goes straight into the water table. Okay, it's massively polluted for the environment and for the human. We, in the future, would aim to buy that and put it through the main mill with PVC line tailings dams, and we'll pay more as a point 
than the mercury mills will do, therefore putting 20%, 30% more money in the pockets of the artisanal miners. And of course, at the end of the day, money talks, uh, particularly in a, in, a, in a poor part of the world. Any questions for Mark and, uh, and Condor? Yes, sir. Yes. If I were to uh, hold your feet to the fire, and I'm in pain of doing all sorts of many evil things to you, except that you had to give up one of those listings, either TSX or LSE, which would you give up and why? That's a great question. Thank you, Charles. Well, we've been listed on the TSX main board now for three months, so in many ways it's premature. The, the listing now is a long-term view as we go through to construction and you know, increase our financing options. I think, having been listed for 12 years on London, it's very difficult for me to turn around and say, I give up that listing. However, I think, now having been in the business a while, we are listed in the wrong jurisdiction. So if I have to give up one, and I could do it properly, with the right support, I would give up London, and I would be on Toronto. And that's not because I'm sitting here in Canada House. Um, but, and the reasons for that is that one 90% uh, of the exploration companies listed on uh, operating in Mexico, Central, South America are listed in Toronto. So we're listed in the wrong place. When I talk about Nicaragua in London, half the people don't know where it is. In, in, with B2 Gold, or thanks to B2 Gold, two producing mines there, everybody in Canada in the mining space knows Nicaragua. So the one thing is jurisdiction. The second thing I think is just exploration here, London, is really badly understood by the retail investor. There are two big resource companies, as Dalradian and ourselves. And we haven't had a successful case in London of a gold company making a 10, 20 bagger. We've had many of those, um, thanks to Ross Beatty's success with, uh, even recently with uh, Kamenak Gold. You know, there've been multi-baggers on Canada in the gold space, and there's been a win. We haven't had that in London. We've had it in uranium, in Euromin, but we haven't had it in gold. So I think that, that with 5% with of the economy, half a million people working in mining, uh, the, there's just more retail money that understands the space. And our market cap's only $50 million. So you need that to get, in, to get involved. So I think on balance, if I had to give one up, uh, I, I would give London. Mark, thank you very much. It was a great story. And uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So, yes, uh, as I was nicely introduced, I'm here to moderate the Yukon panel. Yeah, so the topic of today's panel is about building the mining ecosystem in the Yukon from exploration to production. For those of you that don't know where the Yukon is, we are in London after all. It's a territory in northern Canada. It borders Alaska to the west and British Columbia to the south. And it's probably best known for the Klondike gold rush of the late 1890s. The Chilkut Pass is the famous route that the gold prospectors took uh, to get from the coast of Alaska across the mountain ranges of British Columbia into the Yukon. For those of you Google gold rush the Yukon, there's some very famous pictures of that sort of best epitomize that rush over 120 years ago of uh, the famous golden staircase that the uh, prospectors took, fully laden with gear, uh, where they were climb the mountain and uh, cross the pass on foot. And, uh, and then also, once they got to, uh, to Whitehorse in, in the south of the Yukon, they would get on the paddle steamers, again, fully laden with all their uh, prospecting equipment, and take, take the paddle steamers north to, to uh, Dawson City. So uh, yeah, Dawson City was the, the center of the Klondike gold rush. But uh, the Yukon has seen many mining cycles since then. And thankfully, accessing the Yukon is a lot easier now than it was back then. And in addition, gold, although it remains a dominant mineral uh, in uh, Yukon's portfolio, the prospectivity does span much wider now than precious metals. Our panel today, we are very privileged to, to have them. They will be representing the Yukon. We have an explorer, a developer, and a minister. So uh, we will be discussing all things Yukon, and uh, we have the best minds 
uh, to tell you all about it. So, well, I suppose I need to introduce myself first. Uh, my name is Thomas Horton. I'm the VP of Project Development at Pembridge Resources. Pembridge is a special purpose acquisition company uh, that was set up to invest in mining projects with a view to own and operate. Uh, we recently signed an SPA uh, with Capstone Mining to acquire their Minto Mine, which is an operating mine in the Yukon. So I know a little bit about the Yukon, but not as much as our fellow panelists. So, Good afternoon. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here to support our industry partners. And importantly, it's, it's, uh, I really do appreciate our industry partners uh, working with us as we develop responsibly the Yukon Territory. Um, I'm a member of the Vantakochen First Nation from the North Yukon. Um, prior to uh, taking on a role as Deputy Minister, I was a treaty negotiator for about 20 years in the Yukon with First Nations. I also uh, chaired and headed up the Yukon Environmental Assessment Body, uh, the Yukon Environmental and Social Economic Assessment Board, for a few years. And now I'm working as a, with, uh, and very happy to be with Energy Mines and Resources. The social economic history of the Yukon dates back about 30,000 years, plus or minus 6,000 years, but I'm going to jump ahead to the gold rush, if that works for you. There are perceptions, and I think the perceptions some remain with some about the Klondike. Our mining history is anchored in the Klondike until most recently that was a vision that people had. There's also some TV shows that people might watch that stick us back at that time. But uh, we are uh, a very progressive jurisdiction. We are a frontier jurisdiction with a huge amount of opportunity. You can see on the graph here, I just wanted to go back over the last 35 years. You can see as we cycled through the markets that we would uh, hit lows and we would usually peak at about $50 million. Um, this all changed in 2006 where we had the highest level of expiration in Yukon's history. It was triggered in part, or a large part, by the uh, discovery in the White Gold District. You'll see there that we hit uh, expiration expenditures of 300 million in 2010. We dropped down, but you'll even see at the lower value now, we've sort of come up to a new level. We're even at our lower levels right now, we're still higher than that $50 million mark. So we've kind of set, up, um, set a new level here. Last year, First, when we started in 2017, in February, Natural Resources Canada estimated uh, about uh, expenditures around 70 million. We ended up at about 165 million for the year. This year, natural resources estimates are around 170 million, and uh, there's lots of excitement, so it'll be interesting to see how accurate that number is. If you can see historical production on this table, and then also look at the new resources. Since 2007, just to get an idea about where we've come, uh, um, and these are 43-101 compliant reports. But the key takeaway message is that in one single expiration boom cycle, our metal inventory increased substantially, and newly defined resources eclipse, eclipsing historic production. This map shows in Tatina Gold Belt, extends from central Alaska through Yukon. It's characterized by abundant gold occurrences. At one point, people thought it was sort of a, all the same, what we found through uh, work with the companies and our geological survey is, in fact, we're starting to see that there are at least six distinct mineralization events throughout this belt. And I think that's quite exciting as we get more and more um, information. I would note, with, well, now, now that this map is up and when you see the exploration figures that we have, only 12% of the Yukon is subject to mineral claims at this time. We do have... Uh, 88% of the Yukon um, that does not have claims in place. Some, of course, are in parks and that, but there's a significant opportunity for ongoing exploration activity. I also wanted to speak briefly about some of the investments that we as a Yukon government are doing to support the companies. We do have a very active um, Yukon Geological Survey. We're making investments in numerous areas. It includes geolo geological mapping. Uh, the map on the right uh, shows the three aces area, uh, claims area, and that was three years ago. We've done some additional mapping work. Uh, I'll go back here. Yeah, you can, and over the last few years, we've done additional mapping work to truly um, understand more of these, uh, the deposits in this area and uh, the faults that play the major role in the mineralization. We also provide funds um, through our mineral investment uh, our mineral exploration program. So we earmark $1.6 million. Uh, and I'll just flag, and this, uh, the program, it's very successful. 
The grants leverage about $3 for every dollar spent by the public. Projects uh, that lead to discoveries will get additional or eligible for additional resources. The first soil anomaly with the Coffee Gold project was discovered in 2004 with the $15,000 YMAP grant. The property lot was purchased by Gold Corp in 2016 for $520 million, showing how big an impact a modest investment in public funds can have. Another funding program we have is our Strategic Industries Development Fund, and that's administered through our government, provides up to half a million dollars in leverage funding for industry projects with broad economic benefits. I want to talk about infrastructure because people being far north, people I think uh, have a misconceptions about our infrastructure. In the map that you see here, what we have are road networks and the dotted lines. In colored lines, you'll see access to the Dawson and Nani Ranges, which is a new project, infrastructure project, that the Prime Minister Trudeau announced last year, which is a half a billion dollar investment by the federal government, territorial government, and industry in uh, developing new access into two extremely important mineral-rich areas. The map also shows our uh, Yukon's power grid, which, have, well, which most communities are connected to, and uh, some projects have access to at this time. I would also note that we're very close to three deep water ports and connected to our road networks. So we have Stewart, BC, Skagway, and Haines, Alaska. So while we may be up in the northern Canada, we have a great infrastructure that's set up that's very close to, to all the roads, including, as Graham's talked about, the pending road with regards to their property and Clint's properties as well are all, subject, are all on, the, on the road networks. With regards to First Nations, one of our advantages that we have is 11 of our 14 First Nations have comprehensive land claim agreements, includes a share in the royalties, and a number of other provisions that have allowed First Nations to become truly partners in development. Companies, uh, both these companies have partnerships with the First Nations. Basically, all companies that want to succeed will have relationships uh, with the First Nations. It assists greatly through the assessment regulatory regimes, also helps to secure employment uh, uh, employees, and also they have some really active corporations that can assist in a number of the subcontracts. Now, I know some folks here, it's, it's gold, but also I just wanted to talk about the concept. This is beyond gold as well. Um, in summary, we are a frontier jurisdiction, but we have exceptional mineral investment opportunities. We are seeing growing interest in base metals, including the interest in zinc and, of course, copper. The boom cycle in the last decades saw the highest level of exploration in Yukon's history. Mining, what's important, is absolutely a key contributor to our economy, and for that reason, we support mining and First Nations support mining. It is an opportunity for First Nations to increase their standard of living if it's done properly. It is an opportunity for First Nations to increase their education levels. And I guess what I would um, just finish with is the fact that we do have world-class mining deposits. We have significant infrastructure. And again, we do have a solid government support, both First Nation governments and the Yukon government. So I do encourage everyone here, if you have questions, but I, I do encourage you to be part of what I think is a very interesting jurisdiction to do work. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. So I'm, I'm going to moderate some questions, and then we'll open it up to the floor. So before we go beyond gold, I think, uh, I think we'd all be really interested in um, ATAC and how the, uh, the Barrick uh, relationship came about? Did they approach you? Do you approach them? Was it, uh, what, you know, what were they looking for? Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, when we made, first made our discovery uh, at the, the project, uh, clearly Barrick has been mining uh, Carlin-style mineralization. And uh, initially when we found it, the geological world was like, nah, there's no Nevada-style mineralization outside of Nevada. This just doesn't happen. Obviously, we had a lot of people up to site. Eric was one of them, and uh, we just started our relationship from, from there. They've always been uh, really good to talk to, give us advice, you know, back and forth throughout the years. And eventually in, in the, the downturn, you know, through our discussions, I just said, listen, we're going to be looking to do, uh, to do something. You know, it's hard for us as a junior to be able to, we're spread a little bit too thin, and we, we have uh, part of the property, you know, would you like to talk about getting involved? 
quite simply, I mean, it was very, I mean, it's quite easy. You know, both of us are in the same, have the same goal, to find gold, and lots of it. <laughs> so uh, we sat down and said, what's going to work for you? What's going to work for you? And uh, we worked this out, and it, it's, it's working quite well, and it's a great partnership. Good. And, and do you think there's anything on a sort of bigger scale that the, the, more, the majors are looking for within the UPOM? I would like to think that stable jurisdictions where it's easy to work, I think that's something that you'd probably see well, any company gravitating towards. It's just it's hard enough to find a gold deposit, let alone finding a good one in a good jurisdiction. Hmm. So if you can kind of get the, the bad jurisdictions out of the way and really focus on, and if you really do find something and it's meaningful, but that's all you have to worry about is getting it out of the ground. Yeah. And so, so Stephen, uh, you've obviously had conversations with the various larger investors that have come through, uh, Agnico, Goldcorp, Newmont, as, as well as Barrick. Is there, is there a sort of common theme of what they're looking for within the Yukon and looking to you to provide support for? Well, I think first and foremost, some of our, the work that's been done through the Mine Alliance companies, the Yukon government, We've been front and center partnering for the last number of years, and I think that, that we've been paving a way towards people recognizing that the Yukon has a brand and it's a good place to do investment. So that's one, and that's worked quite effectively with companies in attracting them. The second element is we have great geology. We also have uh, great relationships with First Nations, and I think that that's been an important aspect, and I, which is uh, an ongoing conversation that we have the question about regulatory stability. We have an assessment regime, the Yukon Environmental Social Economic Assessment Board. It's the only regime that exists. Canadian Environmental Assessment Act does not apply in the Yukon. There cannot be a pop-up of SIA as it can in other jurisdictions in Canada. And so for a number of reasons, there's some certainty that you have one assessment regime and a regulatory regime that's predictable. And I think that all of those together um, plus the strength of the juniors and some of the juniors that have been operating for many years. I think all of that together, I, I believe, is, has been able to attract the majors. And so we've gone from a few years ago with none up to with five uh, majors now on the gold side. And that's really important. It's been uh, the last three, four years have been significant, seen a significant change in the investment climate. Interesting. And, and, and Clint, I mean, I, I know you have some very high-grade silver, but uh, essentially you have a base metals deposit. And the deals that we've spoken about are precious metals. Do you think there is the level of prospectivity in the Yukon that will attract the diversified miners, or do you think it's still a little, maybe a little bit too early? Well, that's a good question. You want my geological answer? <laughs> it, um, you know, there's a, this is totally technical, right? There's a group of rocks in the Yukon that uh, travel all the way down through Alaska and into British Columbia. And they host some of the biggest base metal deposits in the world. That there will be you know, major discoveries in the Yukon is not in question. It's only a matter of when it's headed in that direction. And talking my own book, um, yeah, we produce base metals, lead and zinc. It's 20% you know, of the total value of the product. But you know, very few people are aware of what's going on in the base metal business at the present, at the present time. Pembroke aside, uh, you know, acquiring a proper deposit here. But I can tell you that uh, it's, a, it's a miner's market in the base metal business in terms of uh, concentrate production and the interest in, uh, in, base metal, in base metal smelters around the world to lay their hands on, on base metals. And so, yeah, I see it as a very, very important part of the future of the Yukon. Okay. So, uh, Graham, you're an explorer, um, and uh, you, know, you probably spend a lot of your time in a helicopter traveling around, but people have this impression of the Yukon as it being uh, large, arctic, and quite challenging to get about. Do you, do you share that same opinion? I, I don't, but I understand it, because uh, the Yukon is vast, uh, but I would argue, you know, our ability a couple, or, you know, six years ago to be able to build two airstrips on our project and permit a conditionally approved 65-kilometer road. I mean, we envision this, our project to be road accessible. When I look at our project, I look at the Yukon, you know, Mayo, Mayo's the coldest place in Canada sometimes, but man, it's, it's also the hottest place in Canada. I mean, you get six to eight months easily to work in the Yukon. You know, the beauty of our project is you've got big, broad valleys, the infrastructure is not going to be difficult. You're not in none of it. Or not, no, I don't want to, nothing against none of it, but I mean, you know, we're not in the Arctic. You know, I, I mean, if, if you get the chance to come up to the Yukon, I mean, from May to September, October, you can get anywhere. 
No, absolutely not. Right now, I think we have, we have to do those airstrips because it's getting harder and harder to find gold deposits around the world and you need to go out a little bit further to get them. But at least in the Yukon, you got a chance. Well, not a chance, I've proven it. You know, we have a 65 kilometer road that's conditionally approved. We'll have that in a year and a half. So no, the infrastructure's coming and Stephen and the team, or the, and government is fully backed behind us. They completely supported us and uh, helped get that road permitted. Good stuff, and you, can you drill all year round? You can't drill all year round, it's too cold, and just because we're in a little bit of the alpine. I mean, you can, it's just not worth it. We put more drills on in the summer. You actually need a bit of a break, couple months break to see what you have and, and do the work needed and okay. get started up again. So. And Ken, what about your experience in, uh, in actually developing a mining operation? So Alexco will be in production this time next year? Yeah, I'd hope so. Well, before that, um, you know, either the fourth quarter or the first quarter, depending upon a number of uh, a number of issues. But yeah, I mean, infrastructure support, um, yeah, courtesy of Stephen and and other people, you know, have has been great, and it's uh, just a terrific place to work. And as far as I'm concerned, it's one of the more cost-efficient uh, places to work. And in terms of moving a project. You know, from the exploration stage to the production stage, which we have done previously in the Yukon, we could do it. We did it originally in three years. And there are very few jurisdictions in the world where you can achieve that kind of a timeline without compromising any of the you know, environmental community or, or safety uh, components that you're trying to meet. And you haven't had any uh, issues attracting skilled staff at all? You're not planning on pinching any well, from Minto? This, is the, this right? is the person that's operating a mine down the road, right? That's always going to be, yeah. hopefully, when the, when the deal closes. Um, you know, there is, uh, we, we are actually seeing some stress in the labor market. It was not there as little as three or four months ago. So, yeah, there's going to be a... Um, there's some going to be a demand for skills for sure. On the other hand, you know, we spent uh, two or three years supporting and in some case uh, managing and leading training programs, um, you know, in, in the Yukon and, and elsewhere. And uh, hopefully that's uh, it's going to mitigate that uh, that stress somewhat. And Stephen, so we, we the guys mentioned about, uh, well, you mentioned yourself about the mapping that you're doing and also the infrastructure, the roads you're putting in. Is there any uh, other plans to... Uh, support uh, the mining industry within the Yukon, that, or, or, the, or any other uh, ways in which the Yukon is uh, the Yukon government is supporting the mining companies outside of infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, no, thanks for the question. I mean, and it kind of carries on with what Clint was talking about. We have been a big supporter. Industry has been part of that, and First Nations with establishment of the Center for Northern Innovation and Mining in a partnership with Yukon College. And this training institute is a place where all the companies and First Nations and the government can train and provide more technical training for people that want to work in the industry. Yukon government does need to look at and work with our First Nation partners especially. Our unemployment rate's the lowest in Canada in the Yukon, but that means there's also a fairly large non-participation rate. And uh, we do need to uh, continue to work on um, getting more people into the workforce because Basically, if you want a job, you can get a job, and there's a lot of opportunity that's there. And so this is a real uh, opportunity for us to set a new vision on uh, improving uh, the, you know, the uh, social circumstances in communities. Um, so I guess that's the second side of it. We are continuing to work with First Nations and have signed a memorandum as well with all the First Nations in the Yukon about uh, trying to look at ways to improve the mining legislation and how the process works. So that's more efficient and meets the needs of the First Nations, meets the needs of the Yukon government and industry as well. So we can always improve the regulatory and assessment regime, and we need to be able to continue to try to do that and do it. But those are some of the things that we're looking at as a, as a government. Okay, interesting. And so, uh, Clint, I'm, I'm quite interested in your business model. So, um, Alexco, you're developing, uh, well, you're remediating an old mine and developing uh, it back into production, but also you have... Alexco Environmental Group, which sort of sits on the side, and quite interested in how those two businesses have, have worked together in bringing Kena Hill into production. Yeah, I mean, it, it is somewhat counterintuitive. We do run two businesses. Um, we got our start quite some time before we bought Kena Hill, but we were the preferred purchaser of the assets at Kena Hill from the federal government of Canada. At the point of purchase, we own the assets and the liabilities at Keno Hill, subject to an indemnification against the, uh, the legacy liabilities at Keno Hill. It's a very progressive business model. 
and uh, there's representatives of, from Canada, the federal government here, uh, and I will say that you know there's a very talented group of people at the federal level in Canada, both technically and on the policy side. Really, our roots in that business, uh, you know, would go with Canada and the partnership we've had there to clean up the legacy liabilities at, at Keno Hill. And then beyond that, we have expanded that business uh, into brownfields remediation in both Canada and in the United States. So the two sides of the business work together tremendously well. Um, there's overlap on the engineering side. Um, not so much on the science side. My, you know, the science that my engineers do is not quite the same as the science as my environmental guys do, mm. by far. But it, but the business works together, you know, very well. All housed in the same place, and uh, a lot of synergy um, and collaboration between the groups. Mm. Okay, interesting. This could be a sort of a new business model then. Uh, remediating old sites and taking on the liability. The thesis is that, um, you know, there are a number of valuable assets around the world that are hidden behind environmental problems. The issue is liability transfer. So nobody wants to attack these projects that have environmental problems because they get hooked with the liability. We think that we have a business model that goes part way towards, towards resolving that liability transfer issue, in addition uh, to the fact that we're willing to shoulder some of that liability so long as we can mitigate the risk in terms of cleaning up whatever project it is to unlock the value that's underneath that property. So, yeah, it, uh, it's, a, it, it, it's a model that's working, and uh, we're pretty excited about it. Interesting. So, Stephen, are you, are you actively looking to the private sector to help um, remediate mine sites? Well, I think there's efficiency in looking at the private sector. As you might know, governments aren't always efficient. One of the things a similar model with is with Mount Nansen, which is a, uh, another site which uh, we're out uh, for sale. We're working with Canada and Little Salmon Carmax First Nation to look at what to do with that site. We also have uh, a number of these sites. Remember, these were when the federal government was responsible for the regulatory processes. And we, first of all, we're trying very hard not to create new sites with these long-term liabilities. Um, so we have to ensure our regulatory process is quite efficient. We do some have some of these leftover sites, and a very significant one is uh, Farrell. A lot of things you'll hear in Farrell in many meetings is we don't want any more Farrells. Um, whether it's a, a 1 million or 1.5 million or 2, or sorry, 1 billion, 1.5 billion or 2 billion liability. We are currently working with the Ross River Dena Council, the most affected First Nation, to come up with a new partnerships on how to look at a long-term closure for that site. I consider the private enterprise also, of course, as First Nation Development Corporations. So we are currently, uh, when we have small contaminated sites identified, we usually contract with the development corporations for them to do the cleanups on these sites. And uh, that's a good way to continue that partnership with First Nations. If there were any questions from the floor, if gentlemen, there. Uh? We currently have the, the Minto mine that continues to, uh, to produce. We've had um, some that have started production, have stopped based on metal prices and a number of other factors. But what we are seeing is that expiration spend by companies and with the majors coming in, which is uh, just a solid increase as we move a number of mines towards production. So we have Clint's mine for sure that is uh, doing the, the uh, work on the ground in order to get into production, and he can speak to his timeline. We have uh, the BMC mine, uh, which is uh, moving forward through the assessment process right now, moving towards production. We have Coffee Gold, which is Gold Corp's project. We also have Western Copper, who is in the process now and has some uh, a proposal in order to do a panel review, but they're working quite significantly in there. So we have seen a few mines over the past sort of get going and stop, but we are seeing some momentum here with real investment. Um, and with real partnerships with the First Nations that I think take, uh, de-risk some of the, de-risk these projects as they move forward if they're done in partnership with the First Nations. So for many reasons, Minto's operating, it's wonderful, it's great for our economy. The expiration expenditures are great. Um, it's when we get into the mine development expenditures that we start to see some real prolonged investment that First Nations can develop businesses around and same with other Yukoners. So I, I, I realize that's an interesting fact, uh, but, uh, it is a good place for the exploration, but we're seeing it a good place to, to actually roll out and build the mines and operate them. So. I'd like to say thank you ever, ever so much to uh, Graham, Stephen, and Clint for their time. Uh, please give them a round of applause.
Welcome back, and that does it for this week's episode of the podcast. And I wanted to remind you that these are truncated, edited versions of the full presentation. So if you'd like the full presentation, you can go to our YouTube channel where we have the uh, full presentation. You can get that through YouTube, uh, Northern Minor TV, it's called. And uh, we also have links through our homepage, and it's all uh, sub- uh, there's no subscriber wall on them. The things I took out were specific uh, items about the projects. So you had a full presentation on Attack and uh, Alexco and uh, more detail from Mark Child about the Condor project because I try to keep things uh, broader uh, for the podcast. And one other item is just fantastic about audio editing, something I've learned in my uh, beginning as an audio editor here, is through all these things, I'm constantly editing out people saying um and coughing and and uh or repeating words. So in there's, if there's something like a 45-minute uh, fireside chat or something, I can literally chop out 10 minutes of uh, dead air or people repeating themselves or whatever. So the final product in the podcast is a, like a, a denser version, and everybody's IQ is about 10 points higher. It's really quite something. So uh, it is one advantage of the audio podcast over a uh, video, I must say. So anyway, that's it for this week, and I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.